everybody. I'm E.B. Smith. I'm an actor, director, and all-around storyteller coming to you from Stratford, Ontario, and now Athens, Ohio. And I'm Adai Moon. I am a playwright, dramaturg, educator, and director coming to you from Atlanta, Georgia. And you are listening to Old Heads. A deep dive into the struggle from behind the theater curtain. How you doing, Adai? Man, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. You sipping on anything today? Uh, just water. <laughs> just water. You're being good. I, I'm being good. <laughs> Me too. I got my coffee here. That's 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 <laughs> what I'm sticking with today. I, I needed a boost. <laughs> um, we're here with Sadie Berlin today for episode three, uh, and we're talking with her today about a new discipline that she's developing called cultural dramaturgy, um, which I believe could have uh, extraordinary implications for our field and uh, and how we work collaboratively going forward. Uh, Sadie, hello. How are you? Hello. Hello, E.B. Hello, Adaye. Hey, um, Sadie. I, I'm very good. I'm having, I'm sticking to bubbly water myself. So we should all be clear-headed. And... Yes, we should. <laughs> yes, we should. <laughs> clear-headed, clear-eyed, and looking forward. Uh, Sadie and I have been working together quite closely recently uh, at the Stratford Festival uh, on developing anti-racist initiatives. Um, and and new ways of refining our work uh, so that we can support artists the best way possible. Um, and I'm super excited to have her here to talk, talk to us today because I think her brain is fantastic. Uh, I think she's one of the greatest people in my life, and it's just a pleasure to be around her. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Sadie. Ah, oh, how kind of you to say. Uh, well, I feel the same way, and uh, thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure. So uh, just to kick things off, can can we talk a little bit about what cultural dramaturgy is and might be and and uh, what you hope it will become as uh, the work moves forward? Well, I mean, I, I think that we have to, I have to be humble a bit because I haven't really, I only started dabbling in dramaturgy about a year ago. And I still look like a deer caught in headlights every time that someone asks me, what is dramaturgy? So. <laughs> But last year, I was lucky enough to work at the Stratford Festival Lab, which is where we develop plays that are in, in an unconventional way. Let's say that's where we develop plays where the rest of the institution would take a very different approach to what we do. And um, the kind of content that we deal with tends to interact with historically marginalized groups. And the head of the lab, uh, who is uh, Ted Witzel, brought me in to document what the lab did last year, which were seven units, each focusing on a different cultural tradition. We looked into indigenous body of work, Wole Shoyinka, a trans canon, which already exists, but has been concealed by those who guard, by the gatekeepers of the, of the Western canon and also an East Asian unit, a Latinx unit, and a Black unit, a generic Black unit, where we actually worked with Mel Hag on a sort of a noises-off-inspired version of Shakespeare's The Tempest, mm. where, where racialized characters commented on doing this play that, that, that can be done in a very colonial and... Uh, I'm hesitating as I'm saying this because I know that there are people 
who I work for who don't think that there's any sexism or racism in Shakespeare. I would mm-hmm. beg to disagree with that. And mm-hmm. I would say that The Tempest is a specifically problematic play. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. God. Yep. <laughs> You're in good company to say that here, Zadie. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Uh, so what from that work inspired you to begin digging into this new arena? Well, I think that one of the strong impetuses for doing this whole summer of exploring um, non-Western, non-cis-straight work were two particularly triggering productions at the festival. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can speak to your experience in To Kill a Mockingbird. I wasn't into Kill a Mockingbird, but oh, I'm sorry. I, thought I was were. one of the very few black folks that were not <laughs> in that play. <laughs> well, and and also, I think that same year was the Breathing Hole, which was That's the right. first time I I believe that the festival had a play that had such a strong um, indigenous cast. Even though the playwright was not indigenous, there was a a largely indigenous um, creative team that was before my time. But I think that the legacy of the trauma of these productions informed the evolution of the lab and by extension, the festival. Mm-hmm. And, and it's really interesting because as much, of course, as a Black person, I care about Black folk. I care about marginalized people. But it was actually my white friend, Marianne Adler, who looked at me one day and she said, you know, I, I had to call my colleagues nigger every day. Mm-hmm. when I did that production. Oh, and I'm sorry, I, I'm i not going to shy for that from that word. Is that okay? Like, I listened to last week's podcast, and and, 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 and <laughs> oh, no, like, we, oh, are we not saying the word? I, I think that it's the, it's a word that should be said in no, the we're right good. context. Gra- Graham Abbey shouldn't have said no. the word, and he didn't. So <laughs> Yeah, but, yeah. We drop it off all the time. But you're good. Uh, <laughs> we're dropping off. <laughs> in a way. Nigger away. Yeah. <laughs> And as she said this to me, she was crying. And that was over a year after the end of that production. And and I had heard about that production a lot, of course. But for some reason, that was the tipping point. Because I thought, if if she's still carrying this, I can only imagine what the other actors are going through. And I guess the notion of, of cultural dramaturgy is the notion that we're taking care of, I, I, there are three components for me. There's an aesthetic component and it's a political component and a humane component. And the humane component is that we take care of the human beings in the room who are mm-hmm. dealing with trauma, mm-hmm. who have to be subjective to trauma and who have to exert their domination over other people in the room. And you could say that this happens, you know, the, these kinds of power games and subjugation of characters happens throughout the repertoire. Mm-hmm. But it's also important to acknowledge the specificity of, let's say, a white actor calling a black actor nigger yeah. and, and how that impacts them both. And so one of the components of cultural dramaturgy is to actually enable actors to carry these parts for um, months on end mm to come out the other side with their mental health intact. So this sounds like it's going to be more of an ongoing part of the process through not only the the genesis of a of a show but but through rehearsals and into performance too. 
Is that the idea that it's going to sort of continue as a as a point of consultation and a point of focus, uh, a touchstone, if you will, for artists as they progress through the work? Absolutely. I think that ideally, uh, by the time the show opens, hopefully the dramaturge or the consultant who assists the, the dramaturge, the cultural consultant, you know, would have... And that's the problem that's been in the past is that people have been brought in in the middle of the crisis instead of being brought in on day one. Mm -hmm. And if you have the right people in the room on day one, absolutely there should be someone available for anybody involved with the production to, to consult with. But the notion would be that by the time you're at the night of the premiere, that everybody will be in a pretty good place, hopefully. Mm -hmm. and you because the process, will have in, the process will have empowered them. Right. And you would have presumably avoided the crisis points along the way because you would have seen them coming or someone some th that consultant would have seen them coming or at least been able to to intervene before something reached the point of crisis. Well, yes. And the and the notion is to apprehend these issues before they flare up. And that, of course, begins way before the first rehearsal day. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, I can give you an example of. Uh, a play by a Nigerian playwright that the festival wanted to do in 2021. And they ask uh, a director who's from Ghana to direct it. And, and this director is very familiar with that Nigerian playwright's work. And that was another point of inspiration for me because his, his immediate instinct was to say, I'm going to need a Nigerian dramaturge or a Nigerian consultant. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, Ghana is just next door to Nigeria. And this director has some knowledge of Yoruba culture, but you cannot substitute. <laughs> you know, it's not because we live in Ontario that we could dramaturge a Quebec play. Right. Well, well, this 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 leads me into a question that Adaya and I were sort of tossing about the other day when we were thinking about how to chat about this today. We're wondering how specific we need to get with the onboarding of someone in this position. For example, if you have a if you have a play like The Breathing Hole, for example, which was uh, ostensibly a play about climate change uh, through the lifespan of a 500-year-old polar bear, <laughs> um, but it involved an indigenous community who interacted with that polar bear um, and their their life with the polar bear, as well as the, the European settlers that came over. And then as the play progressed into the modern day with the sort of uh, descendants of settlers on a cruise ship through the Arctic and and how they interact with the polar bear. You know, you have a lot of different perspectives and a lot of different people in that room. So so I guess my question is, how do we assign the right person uh, if if we have to have all of those viewpoints looked after? This is a, a question that I think has vexing points in it, but I think that we have to begin by acknowledging that People who are not white, cis, straight, because of the consumer culture that's been thrown at them, we all have PhDs in white culture. Yes. <laughs> and so most of us have seen movies, read books about Arctic expeditions. And, and the thing is that an institution is not going to be lacking in sources for that kind of research. And so what I would like is to see, well, I, I mean, I, I, I do feel that an indigenous story should be written by indigenous people, but, you know, that, sh that ship having sailed, 
I would definitely have Northern uh, nations involved in the creative team from the get-go. And if the, and if you cannot find uh, an Inuit dramaturge, you have a consultant working, so an academic, a cultural guru, an elder doing the work side by side with the dramaturge. I don't mean a one afternoon consultation. I mean, someone who is in the room from before day one and through the rehearsal process. Mm-hmm. How does that strike you, Adai? Because I, you know, yeah, I think it's I think it's necessary. I mean, it's interesting because I I'm not sure how it is in Canada, but I know in the U.S. institutions are still having a struggle figuring out what the role of a dramaturg is, or what in fact a dramaturg is, as well. So, so it's interesting, especially with you exploring the idea of cultural dramaturgy. It, it's I mean, for me, it seems to be putting a very precise lens on a part of what the dramaturgical practice is. And that really is, especially for texts that are written by non-Europeans, is really about, you know, giving everybody the resources they need to make sure that that the production, and I guess everything associated with the production, goes as smoothly as possible. And that seems to make perfect sense to me. I mean, I would love for you to talk more about um, the aesthetic and, and political components of cultural dramaturgy as well. Well, I think for me, the political question is quite widespread, but Mm -hmm. let me begin with um, a few weeks ago when the festival, the Stratford Festival, decided to give its Black company members its comms, right? They just turned over their comms to us. And Erica Croft thought of the hashtag in the dressing room, because the notion was that what happens in the dressing room stays in the dressing room and that Black company members... And anybody who wanted to participate uh, could add their stories of racialized incidents that they experienced in the in the dressing room. And you read the posts, and it, and people of color are, are are start with, "Well, I was playing this slave, and I was playing this maid, and then and I was playing this slave, and I and and it was astounding. It's like how many slaves." <laughs> <laughs> An endless string. <laughs> How many slaves are in European dramatic text? And and then, you know, the white young actors would begin with saying, well, I was playing a servant. And I mean, it makes sense, right? Because Western mm-hmm. theater is very concerned with wealth, even right. to this day. Mm-hmm. And so it makes sense that you would have servants. But that bespeaks such an emphasis on the domination Mm. of some human beings over others. Mm-hmm. We need to ask ourselves, why are, are those our chosen texts? And we have to ask ourselves, why are we doing these specific plays? I'm not a censor, but, you know, I, theaters can get touchy when you ask them, like, why did you choose this play? And so I'm just going to assume that they put a lot of time into into how they pick a specific play. But to be honest, nine times out of 10, I don't see any evidence of that thought process on stage. Mm-hmm. If we're going to keep these shows, we need to have creators, and I mean, you know, directors, adapters, dramaturgs, who can take charge of a text and have a real vision for it. You know, setting a play in Nazi Germany is the subatomic germ of an idea. It does, it does not constitute a vision. Right. 
Right. To me, there's a political angle into what is the Western canon? How do we Mm -hmm. define it? And then if we're going to to keep putting people uh, in these situations, playing these roles, if, if we have a strong vision for the text and we make it relevant to 2020, I think that very often we can empower the production, the quality of the production. And uh, I'm just not sure why there's, there seems to be a, an inability and, and to, be, uh, to be frank, a lack of intellectual courage right. in approaching the, you know, the so-called Western canon. Yeah, and, and I'm so glad, I'm so glad that, that you explained it the way, the way that you did because it, it makes you think about a conversation that E.B. and I had on the first episode and, and the idea that I don't think we've gotten to the point yet as a global theater community or even people who work for cultural institutions. I don't think we've gotten to the point yet where we can really accept the fact that most of these institutions and the text or the art that's being explored, in a lot of ways, their purpose is to uphold white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And um, I think until we realize that and realize that if you're going to explore these texts that so obviously deal with class and race, even if it's in the subtext, there needs to be a critique of that somehow in the production process or the rehearsal process. But again, I think people hold their their canon and their ancestors very close to them. So I understand that. But I think your point is so valid because I don't think people even see the inherent problems with like the Tempest, for example, as you said earlier. I've heard so many times from from white artists in particular that that they believe that theatrical work, particularly Shakespeare, can be apolitical. I mean, no art is apolitical. No. It's insane. No, but, there, but there's this idealistic hope that it could be somehow. That they're, mm. they're transcending politics by, you know, setting a play wherever they're setting it and trying to downplay the issues of class and race and those other implications in the work. I, I wouldn't want to transcend politics, but I'm not even sure what that means. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. What is that? What does that look like? <laughs> what does that look like? So how do you hope that this discipline can develop as it as we move forward? Well, you know, a big in- inspiration for me was um, the development of uh, intimate choreographers. Mm. Because I, I, I think that this theater is a place that is rife for ex- exploitation. The arts are. Right. And when there is sexual content in a play which I think that there's not nearly enough of in our theaters because sex is such an important part of life and you never see it on stage, which yeah. baffles me a bit. I thought that this was a great way of, of making sure that the people performing these scenes are safe mm-hmm. and, and also emboldened. When you have agency, when you feel that you have an agency, you're emboldened and you can push further. I mean, right. my, my whole goal with cultural dramaturgy in the end is to have better theater mm. on the other side, mm-hmm. higher quality of theater. Uh, and so how I see it developing, well, that's what we're going to explore in our little seminar over the next two weeks. Just just to, to tag on yeah. to that, for those that aren't aware, Sadie is uh, teaching a class for ghostlight.ca uh, on cultural dramaturgy. And it's it's shaping up to be a think tank on on developing this as a practice. So I'm super excited to, to 
follow along and see how that goes. Has it started yet, Sadie? It's starting next week. Okay. Is, is it too late to sign up? Oh yes. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I was actually by the by the time by the time y'all are hearing this, it will have started. Yeah. Well, I, and and so how it will develop will be, and and that's it's really important to be uh, humbled through this process. You know, some people have contacted me to say, "Oh, I've been doing this all my life," and I'm sure people have. I'm sure that people in theater who are humane and intelligent and awake have noticed that they've organically developed mechanisms to do what I'm calling a cultural dramaturgy. And I should say that I did not invent the, the term, but it was interesting to get messages from people telling me, you didn't invent this. And I, I'm not claiming to having invented this. Right. <laughs> and and and, I'm, and I also wonder if white men who, who decided to do to do a class about about an emerging form uh, would get these messages, but but I want to acknowledge the fact that that you know I'm not I'm not creating something out of thin air, and it's still in the process of being creating. And over the course of the class, we plan on just coming up with a few principles mm-hmm. and maybe a toolkit, and we hope that this will um, promote more conversation of this practice and you know, hopefully it will be picked up on. What what role do you think that um, the, the infamous and occasionally problematic talkback and also community outreach play in this practice, if any? Actually, Adai, this is a, a, a question I, I had not thought of, but it's a very good one because I think that cultural dramaturgy can take off and become a tokenized little ghetto inside of a wider institution, right? Mm -hmm. So so in terms of community outreach, I I think that it's going to be up to the marketing departments to evolve. And that, that I think, is very much going to be part of our message Mm. uh, as uh, EBNI, as part of our task force. Because, I mean, the breathing breathing hole was was an example where the performers, the indigenous performers, felt like, a natural history museum exhibit, mm. you know, mm-hmm. that the, they're performing on stage and every face in the audience is white. And it's my understanding that up to 5% of the Canadian population is indigenous. They don't live far from here. And it's very much up to us to bring them to the theater. I don't, I don't know if that answers your question, but. So one of the reasons that we wanted to have this conversation this week uh, is because last week, or last episode, uh, we spoke with Graham Abbey and Michael Healy about the experience of making Front Page. And, you know, as we discussed with them, Front Page is a play written in the 30s from a very white perspective with a, with a predominantly white cast, an exclusively white cast, in fact, when it finally hit Broadway, although there were black characters in the original iterations of the play. But one of the challenges that, that Healy and... and uh, Mr. Abbey encountered was that we wanted to update the play, if you will, uh, and introduce some uh, multicultural perspectives into the work. Um, so I know you've had a chance to listen to that discussion, uh, and I was wondering what your initial thoughts were upon hearing it in terms of how cultural dramaturgy might have impacted that process. Well, I don't know much about this this uh, production, and I think that we're going to have to recognize the difficulty of dealing with American blackness in cultural dramaturgy. Mm-hmm. 
because Black Americans were robbed of their ancestry. And, and, and subsequently, there's been, you know, in, in the 20th century, immigration from uh, Haiti, other parts of the Caribbean, and, and Africa itself. Blackness is not the monolith that it was perceived as in the 1930s. I mean, I have to say, I have very mixed feelings about these kinds of adaptations because I'm often anxious about what they're asking me to overlook. <laughs> For sure. I don't know. It's like going to a rave, a three-day rave, but then there's the version you tell your friends and the version you tell your grandmother, right? <laughs> does, does that make sense? It makes, makes complete sense. <laughs> it really does. It makes complete sense. <laughs> it really does. I mean, one of the one of the things that, that Graham and Michael were talking about, specifically Michael, was that uh, he felt at a certain point that he should have stepped away from the process. Uh, as a white playwright, he felt he had no business uh, uh, approaching that work uh, at a certain point as the conversations sort of felt like they were um, progressing beyond what he was comfortable with. How, how do you feel that, that a, a, a practice of cultural dramaturgy would, would allow white writers, for example, to feel empowered to approach this work? And is that a good thing? Uh, is he right that he should have stepped away? Well, no, I can't speak to that. And I'm sure that if dramaturgs are not, and, and Black people are not all going to agree on this, I think that if a white person wants to write an adaptation of the front page, go for it. And then, you know, get get the response that you get. I think probably... I, I'm, you know what? I'm, I'm not sure that I agree with the premise of of infusing women and black people who were not in the play, you know, from the get go. But taking that as a starting point, I, I don't know. I think that maybe Michael, maybe Michael needed a black dramaturg. I'm not sure. So, so, so talk a little bit more about that, if you would, Sadie, about uh, disagreeing with the premise of of multiculturalizing, if you will, this newsroom or. Injecting women to what was an all-male reporter's room originally. It's very funny that I, you know, generally in life, I really roll my eyes when people say, think of the children. But, but, in, but in a case like this, I'm thinking of young people who will see this play and think that their 1930s were like that. Oh. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, there's an influx of blind casting that started quite a while ago with the BBC in the UK. And, and I'm, I'm just wondering that if someone is 20 years old right now and, you know, their parents were big fans of PBS and they go see plays that are, that are reconstructed like this, do they have a distorted vision of the past? Well, that's, that's, a, that's a really good point, Sadie. I mean, <laughs> I, I guess it does. It, it begs the question, do, is, is front page a play we just shouldn't do? I mean, we don't want to misrepresent the past. However, front page is a play that even even in its time was written as a comedy uh, and in fact made light of a lot of these social issues uh, for the entertainment of white folks going to see a Broadway production. Um, and I, I, I just wonder what, if any, possibility there is for keeping that play in our repertoire. Well... 
I haven't seen the front page, so I can't make an expert um, pronouncement on it. But I can tell you, for example, that An Octoroon, which, you know, is not an adaptation. It's a, it's a new play. But mm-hmm. in, uh, in Canada, it was done at the Shaw Festival by a white director. Uh, and, and he nailed it. Oh, wow. And that's the thing, right? When someone nail, nails it, there's not a lot of talk about right. about who has the right to do these shows, right? If you if you do it really well uh, and honor Brendan's vision, and it you know it was just it was just a fantastic production, as far as I know. Nobody said Peter shouldn't have done this show, right? And I I don't know if there was a black dramaturge. Do you know? I don't I don't know. I I have to say that at this point, at this juncture in my life. I don't know what our culture and our society would lose by not doing a play like the front page. Right. What what role do you think education in general plays in this? Because you know when we have the front page conversation, or even thinking about Brandon's exploration of the Octoroom and the Octoroom, there's a serious and it it bothers me personally. You know, especially when you deal with plays that were written in the modern era, or, or at least from like the 1800s, that people seem to forget the fact that there were Black writers writing <laughs> and creating <laughs> plays, you know, in the 1800s. There were Black intellectuals, you know, who were creating yes. texts that were exploring ideas that explored those time periods. It's as if, you know, Black people suddenly didn't start thinking and creating art until, until the mid-20th century. And... That baffles me because, you know, as you said earlier, we all have a PhD in, in Eurocentricity. And, and, and it, would, it would seem that, you know, serious theater artists would actually take the time to educate themselves about the aesthetics, the ideas of BIPOC folks in, in these periods in which they're creating these, these plays. Did you know that the Lincoln Center has hundreds of plays written by Black women from the 19th century. Right. Mm -hmm. They have not been digitized. They have not been published. Oh, wow. You have to go there to... And I'm not saying that they don't have any plans to do so in the future. Right. But those right now are pretty inaccessible. Like, we don't don't know Mm. what's in there. But yeah, there's, there's a specific muting of uh, of all this of of all this art. You know, I know that I'm not alone. Who spent two hours watching hidden figures crying because you know why the fuck have has nobody told me about these women? Why right, did right. I grow up? Why did I go to math class and physics class and nobody told me? You know, there are women who look just like you, mm-hmm. right? who were world-leading scientists. And this is, I'm sorry, but I feel this is completely deliberate. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I agree. I, I agree. And I didn't know about the, the Lincoln Center having things that weren't digitized, because I, I'm thinking about there's a database that Alexander Street Press has, which is uh, their Black Drama database. And you can usually get access to it from, from any like university. But it has over 7,000 unpublished plays by black writers i mean mean, starting from like the 1800s on it's accessible so you know you have this accessible database and what you're saying about the lincoln center is that and there's even still more work that we don't know about Mm -hmm. that's my understanding yes so i mean that that, that's 
I just think, you know, if, if you know, if, if we're really serious about this craft, we need to get in those archives and really start doing that work because it's necessary. It absolutely is. There are so many PhD dissertations in this, you know, and, and that's that's extraordinary because you go to graduate school because my, my background is in literature. You go to graduate school and it's everybody is still doing, you know, Shakespeare, Milton, <laughs> Joyce, right. Chaucer. Right, right. And it's like we don't need more books about Shakespeare, or 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 if we do, or if we do, you know, let's let's have like the the, the Black Panther's Guide to Shakespeare. We'll right. <laughs> I'm looking for a PhD thesis right now, Sadie. I might steal that one. That sounds fantastic. Right. So, right. so hopefully, what we're all working towards will make these fields of studies glamorous enough for people to take them up. Right. right. People who are doing dissertations are always looking, you know, for an original angle. Mm. And it's like this there's this entire world here. And and at, uh, at I, I'm, I hope I'm not mistaken. I was told that that uh, the place that I'm thought that I'm referring to were not digitized because a friend of mine got got a grant to go down there and 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 explore them but it's possible that i'm wrong i i didn't even know that that they had thousands of them that were digitized already yeah and and, and the thing is you're, you're probably right because i'm just thinking from that from the from alexander street press's database you know they they even allude to the fact that this is only a portion of you know what we know about the existing canon and they're actually much more uh, diasporic because also has uh, writers from uh, the continent from the Caribbean as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, you know, I, I, again, it's like you know, with with all this talk about you know decolonizing <laughs> uh, uh, rehearsal spaces or decolonizing these institutions, we really need to put a lot of effort towards decolonizing the canon and really thinking about what that means. Yes. Yes. Well, uh, last year in the trans unit, we did a play uh, go- called Galatea by John Lilly, mm-hmm. which has a very, uh, it's very queer. Um, and it's, uh, and I think that trans people are seeing it as part of their canon and rightfully so. It's interesting that uh, Shakespeare uh, used it as a as an inspiration for as you like it and and the play is not done because people say that um, as Emma Franklin who is a great trans artist from the UK when she came to to talk to us about the play she said you know it's not people not don't perform it because it, they say it's not performable and and the only thing that's not performable <laughs> about it is that you know what it does it's 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 queer. And it is also destroys um, hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that that infuriates me because because that that that's the excuse that's often used for not studying or not producing non-white text. Because for years people said that about Adrian Kennedy's work that it's always oh, nice on the page, but how how are you going to stage that? And and and, and it gets to the you know and, and and along with the canon, it's like you know we're we're so trapped in this this Aristotelian thing that we still can't fucking shake. <laughs> that it really makes, you know, pushing people to really like go outside of that comfort zone e- even more of a challenge because it's hard for people to want to put the effort into producing a work that they don't understand. Yeah. And that doesn't center them. Right. Well, I mean, you see how people are resisting something as 
simple as Black Lives Matter and how they see it as a complete threat to, to their centrality in our society. And theater completely is an extension of that. I, I often go back to, is it Misty Misty Copeland? The ballet dancer? Yes. She has a documentary on Netflix and she says, you know, ballet is the last bastion of white supremacy. And I'm like, girl, I've been saying this for years. (laughs) Do you know theater? Sis, have you been to a theater lately? (laughs) Have you been to the opera lately? It has plenty of bastions. (laughs) It has plenty of bastions. Bastions galore. And that's very sad because EB and and I'm sure you've experienced that as well a day that that our most liberal open-minded friends can become very defensive mm-hmm. when we want to you know to talk about any any shifting in terms of moving Shakespeare off to the side for a little while or a right. little bit or just you know as soon as you suggest you know, something like an Octoroon. And I think that it's because, which was not well-received by critics, and that blew my mind. Oh, that's interesting. Well, because audiences in Canada are, are quite elderly. And I went near the middle of the run and near the end of the run. And by the end of the run, the audience was much younger than I'd ever seen at Shaw. The word of mouth had done its work. But there is still such fear and it is, it, it's irrational, it's out of proportion. And, you know, I, I have to say that sometimes I really resent having to be so gentle and saying, now, now, we're just going to give one Black play some space, <laughs> right. okay? Just one. Relax, yeah. breeze. And, and, you know, we're, not take, we're not taking it all away from you. I'll bring you a big jug of, uh, of iced tea for you to console yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> but but you know what as you as black human beings and as people working in theater it's important to acknowledge that we have to be mindful of white fear all the time we have to mm-hmm. carry white fear all the time and that just adds to our work like eb and i have not have not worked at all very little on on our creative work which is the core of our beings in the last month because we've been yeah trying to educate people about anti-racism this is right. well and this and is that's a that's a that's a good point too sadie because you know even in the room and it's part of the reason why cultural dramaturgy is so important as a practice because in the room that job falls to us right as we're trying to prepare a role we should we should be taking on all of those responsibilities we should be learning our lines we should be doing the text work we should be doing our own research and dramaturgy as characters that doesn't necessarily have to do with the broader implications of what the play is going to do socially, politically, et cetera, uh, as it reaches an audience. We should be inside the story. But in, but as it stands now, actors have an onus upon them to to actually have that outside eye and try to keep an, a running audit of what is going on on a broader scale as well. And so it, 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 it does damage our work as we're in the inside of something. We can't actually... Uh, we can't actually dive in the way that our white counterparts can because we can't trust that what's going to be communicated on the public facing end is going to be something we're comfortable with unless right. we have our hands on it. That is such an important point and expressed with great 
intelligence and you know what this is this is part of the reasons why uh, i think that cultural dramaturgy needs to become part of the of the dramaturg's practice i see it like i i i see i've seen your face coming out of a rehearsal when you had to explain <laughs> a very basic a very basic you know you called me on <laughs> but, it too <laughs> no but you know what it's it's i mean we laugh about it now but I mm-hmm. see the weight on Black actors' shoulders. Mm, right. And, you know, it's the same for non-binary and trans folk. It's the yeah. same for... And, and you know, I've definitely seen uh, this year how Asian artists have been affected by the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Asian artists and Asians in general in the West are often used as pawns by the white majority, you know? like yeah. and, and I think that this... If, if you've made a path for yourself as a member of the model minority and you're living through 2020, 2020, I think, is a big slap in the face. Right. Several of my friends, I think, were, were never blind to the fact that they were, as Asians, that they're POCs and that they're viewed differently. But I think that this year is on another level. We're all being given a tremendous extra burden. Right to carry in the room and cultural dramaturgy should alleviate that if it's done well. Mm-hmm. Mm. It seems to me too, that we, we have an extraordinary gift being given to us now that we have this time to step back and take a broader view so that practices like cultural dramaturgy can be centered as we talk about relaunching a theater practice as an industry. That's interesting. Uh, can I ask you a question to you both? Mm-hmm. Of course. If things don't change after this, will you be reconsidering? I'm just, I'm just, I'm more, I'm concerned because I already, I already have a couple of, of, uh, uh, of friends who decide who've turned their back on theater. Oh wow! Uh, in in the last few months, mm-hmm. and I'm just wondering because I'm asking myself this question. I'm not, I'm not sure that I want to go on as as we were before. Oh, I don't. I certainly don't. I have yeah. no intention of going on those we can. before. I mean, I, I've been I've been approached by several companies lately, as you know, Sadie, who want to do work around anti-racism and mm-hmm. uh, decolonization and all of this. And, and there seems to be a real energy for it, a real hunger for it. It, it feels right. like predominantly white institutions are speaking about this as a practice uh, in a new way. I don't know if there's going to be follow through, but my, my position has become, if there isn't, I'm leaving, <laughs> you know, wow. first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm charging for my time now. Right. Uh, I gave it away as an artist, as, as an artist consultant for a long time. I'm not doing that anymore. You're going to pay me for the time I'm spending to do this emotional heavy lifting. And yeah. as you ta- as you talk about a die kind of taking care of the the white fragility in the room as we confront these issues, uh, <laughs> but also there is a bit of an ultimatum in what I'm saying, and that is if you open this Pandora's box, you have to deal with what comes out of it. Right. And there is going to be a lot of guilty feelings. Gotta be, there's going to be a lot of discomfort. There's going to be a lot of reckoning with these practices that you've upheld for so long. And if you don't face them, I have no time for you because I can't help you anymore. You know, my, uh, over the course of my career, I've, I've done a lot of that helping, 
right? And trying to bring people along and then paying dearly for it in the end. Right. When I've said yes to things that I knew were going to be problematic, when I that I knew probably wouldn't make it to the level of uh, comfort and safety that I needed to do my art. Um, and then it's it's led me nowhere but therapy and, and depression and all sorts of horribleness uh, that I just don't want to deal with anymore. And so... So, so to answer your question, Sadie, I'm, uh, this is the last chance <laughs> and I'm yeah. going to do, I'm going to do that consultation on my own terms. And if what I see coming back does not match up with what the stated intention was, I'm walking away. I don't have yeah. time. Um, you know, a couple of weeks ago I was speaking with Philip Aiken, who's the artistic director of Obsidian on a, on a broadcast with Ghostlight. Um, and his position was, you know, stop trying to change these white institutions. <laughs> right. Just he doesn't have he doesn't have the energy or the time for it anymore. He says, spend that energy building up black institutions. Um, and I, I I'm I'm reticent to be that categorical about it because I don't necessarily want to give up on these places because for as much pain as they have caused me, they have also caused me they have also brought me a lot of joy. Um, and and I I know you know, a plethora of extraordinary artists and friends who mean well, who, who really want to get this right, who are within these structures. The problem is that the structures that we're working within are oppressive. Um, right. So my, my feeling is instead of focus on doing solely black work, my, my feeling is, okay, these institutions don't want to change. We're going to start a new institution where we begin from a multicultural framework uh, of anti-oppressive practices and go from there. Yeah. And, and, and you know, Sadie, on, on my end, I'm, I'm, I'm probably, I'm probably much more team Philip Aiken. <laughs> it always, <laughs> it always happened. And, um, and I know for me, uh, it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard. It's emotionally taxing. I was going to ask, ask you a question. I mean, I think for me, um, and this has been going on for the past couple of years, uh, personally, about really reframing what my practice is. And even though, you know, at the top of the show, I list all the things that, that I do at my core, I consider myself to be a cultural worker. And so because of that, um, the work that I do is really about telling the stories of my people. And that's where, especially at this time, I find myself wanting to place my I don't personally have the energy, the time, nor the inclination to educate white institutions. And I'm not saying that that's not important work. I just don't think that's my work, personally. So, you know, no matter what happens post-COVID, post-uprisings, I think it's really important that we still have BIPOC artists who are going to tell BIPOC stories, whether they're at BIPOC institutions or whether they're in some digital realm. But I think it's still important for us to do our work and tell our stories, regardless of what these uh, dominant institutions decide to do. And, and when I say that I want to produce multicultural work to feed off of that, Adaye, what I mean is that I want to produce multicultural work that includes white people that centers BIPOC narratives, because we cannot just separate ourselves from that experience of interacting with white folks. We do it every day. But what we haven't done dramatically, by and large, is do it honestly. We also haven't really centered our narratives either. 
No, so, we so, haven't. That's true. Yeah, yeah so, so, so the interesting thing will be to see by decentering whiteness, will white artists come and join the party? And I think that's, that... That's a very interesting question. That's the question. And I hope they do, because that's a huge part of the growth. That's a huge part of the reconciliation. But don't you think that there are always white actors who would be ecstatic to work with the black companies, just like there are non-Jewish people who work with the Jewish companies? I, I mean, I think that I'm of two minds about it. I think that I would like to spend part of my career in black theaters and part of my career because because I've been exposed to straight whiteness my entire life. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't have as much mystery to me, but I want to work. I want to work with Asian artists. I want to work with mm-hmm. uh, indigenous artists. And actually, maybe, maybe we need to reinvent things because right now you need to go to white institutions yeah. to work with a wide uh, intersection of artists. So maybe that should be our goal. Maybe we right. should create... That's, that's ultimately what I'm, what I'm pushing for. When I'm right. consulting with these institutions, I, I would like to decenter whiteness from their conception of where the art is coming from. Um, but I, I do appreciate the fact that we can access such a broad cross section of people. You know, the other thing that Philip mentioned in our talk on the Friday night broadcast was that, you know, we it's not it's not really possible to change the mandate for a black institution. Because that's what it is. That's what it is, <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's why it exists is to center right. blackness. And and yeah. and I think there's there's an importance to that, of course. And you know, I've worked for black theaters as well, and I and I love working for black theaters. But but as a multicultural human being, I, I know I'm not going to get that experience working for black theater. And so, as you say, Sadie, I have to go to a white institution to do that. A white institution that's willing to multiculturalize, as it were. I would push back with that a little bit, though, because I also think, too, that what, what we need to, as a Black artist and even in Black institutions, and this goes back to what some, something Sadie said earlier, is that Blackness is not monolithic. It's like, I feel totally comfortable, you know, and, and maybe this is because I'm a student of the canon. I mean, mm-hmm. Blackness and all its diversity has not has not been remotely explored on on stage yet. No. And, and Black art, look, I'm going to call us out on this because Black artists are guilty of this, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've had numerous conversations about August Wilson with black artists, particularly in Canada, who, who don't have an awareness of the striations within those plays and right. the tension that exists between different groups of black folks in those plays. Like Joe Turner's Come and Gone is a, is a perfect example of this because you have everyone from runaway and former slaves right. to freeborn homeowners, landowners in that play, and they're all black. And and that interplay is inherently charged with tension. Right. Aday, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. When you say that you see yourself as a cultural worker you, and you tell cultural stories and that you're, in a sense, a social worker, do you feel comfortable with that? Because I think it's it's interesting because I, I would embrace you saying that now, but in mm-hmm. my former, more white mindset, I think that I was trained to think that nobody should do something without having a specific expertise. Right. And I've realized, I've realized over the over my lifetime that that's a bit of a con game. Right. That, oh no, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think a lot of it has to do with with lineage. And I think it's up for every single artist, regardless of your ethnicity or cultural background, 
to sort of claim your lineage. And so for me, the artists that I consider my ancestors are people who also did work in their community or people who also did work that was about liberation. And they told stories and they wrote plays and they directed plays and they, you know, theorize about performance techniques. So, so it's like, because of that lineage that I have or the lineage that I've claimed and cultivated, I feel really comfortable calling myself a cultural worker, but also call, call, calling myself a playwright and a dramaturg and a director and an educator. But I, I do think that a cultural worker is the thing that fuses all those things together for me and kind of makes navigating black and white spaces a lot easier and it's also really kept me sane. And that makes a lot of sense. I think that we we need more holistic practices. Right. And 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 earlier when I was asked about uh, community outreach, I I didn't mean to push back in the sense of not working in the community. I think that I think that I'm a bit worried about um, um, us cultural workers being asked to do that work in every other department of the institution. Right. So, so that's why I was like, let the marketing department. <laughs> exactly. But, but they need to uh, be in that rehearsal space to hear what you have to share with them. Though. Well, and the marketing department also needs to be a multicultural organization as well. They, right. They need diversity at their core as well. And so does development. So does major gifts. So does casting. Because right now, as cultural workers, we're all alone on the creative side. Right. And generally at the bottom of the creative side ladder. Yes. And, and I also think that we need to do our jobs, let, let other people do their jobs. Mm -hmm. And uh, Adaita talks about what amounts to a holistic practice is also very attractive to me because I think that it's probably much better for the practitioner's mental health. Mm -hmm. I, you know, we, we have in the West a very fragmented view of work. You know, even intellectual work is divided up in some kind of, mental assembly line I'm, I'm i'm not exactly sure how to uh how to solve that issue but but i think that's something to work towards and and adai if you want to talk at one point i'd love to talk to you about your practice oh i would love to that's exciting thank you so much sadie for coming thank you so much sister we appreciate this this is a fantastic thank you conversation both. and as always <laughs> i love hearing you talk about all of this work so inspiring and it gives me so much hope for where we're going together because this is really this is i think this is at the heart of how we're going to succeed in making better art as we move forward in the future and and less damaging art and and uh how we're going to empower artists so thank you for your work and thank you for your practice we need it mm -hmm. you know it's just a little nudge really and you know when people agree to accept to be nudged you know, then they realize, oh, my God, that was it. That was all I needed to do to make things perfect for everybody else. It can be complicated and it, it can also be very simple. So I'm looking forward to working on this. And I'm so grateful for this opportunity to talk with you, two wonderful brothers. <laughs> thank you, sister. Appreciate it. OK, thank you. We would like to thank Sadie Berlin so much for joining us on today's episode. Thank you, Sadie. It's fantastic. Old Heads Podcast is created in association with Ghostlight Creative, written and co-hosted by E.B. Smith and Adaye Moon, produced and directed by Nicole Unju Bell. Our social media and marketing director is Adriana Prosser. Also, a huge thank you is due to our patrons. 
If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to contribute to hear more, please head over to patreon.com slash oldheads and pledge your support today. 